Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Hello, Erickson Covenant Church. It is great to be able to join you here and to share God's word with you as we celebrate the Advent season. When Tom first asked Jess and I to come and share, I'm going to be honest, it probably wasn't at the top of the list of things that we would love to do. We don't feel like we are trained preachers and speakers, but we just love Tom so much, and so we're just so excited to be able to help him out and give him, give him a weekend off and to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. So this week we're celebrating the theme of joy in the season of Advent. Mm-hmm. And Tom gave us a verse, a couple verses here this morning from the book of Micah and the book of Matthew. So I'm going to read those this morning and we're going to dive right in. Uh, first reading comes from Micah 5 verses 2 to 4. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And the second reading is found in Matthew um, chapter 2, verses 5 to 6. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. As I was contemplating this theme of joy for this Sunday, I realized that I must admit something to you all. To me, in my life, one of the most terrifying emotions has been joy. This is Probably not something you hear very often, especially in this season where we see that word along with hope and peace and love practically everywhere on ornaments and Christmas decorations. Uh, But something, something struck me was how I am more familiar with the concept of foreboding joy as opposed to joy itself. Foreboding joy, in a nutshell, is a dress rehearsal for tragedy. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that before, but it's essentially preparing for the worst, even when things are at their best. We probably are all familiar uh, with, with the feelings of this, and at some point in our lives, maybe feeling joy at the birth of your child, uh, um, and then to also, <laughs> in the next moment, picture tragedy in their future, uh, to feel excited about a new job opportunity only to feel that it probably is too good to be true or that something's going to go wrong. Or even as I picture going off for a day on my own uptown and all I'm worried about is that I'm going to probably hit the ditch on my drive home because it's icy and snowy out, right? The drama of it all. My past has been filled with flatlining. I'm not sure if you've heard of that either, but this like flatlining emotions where you don't feel anything high and you don't feel anything low um, to keep it consistent so that you don't feel any of the extremes. 
I didn't like to get too excited or happy about anything because <clears throat> if things didn't work out, I wasn't disappointed. And if they did, I wasn't really surprised either. This act of foreboding joy is rooted in the deep lies about myself and about God. Foreboding joy is full of scarcity and fear. And when I think of some of those lies, I think of, I am not seen, I am forgotten, I am alone. And then when I think about my, the lies I believed about God are, um, God is a bad father, he has abandoned me, God is powerless. To be fully joyful is an extremely vulnerable thing. If we lose our tolerance for this vulnerability, then our joy will continue to be foreboding. These lies and fears don't actually protect us when bad things happen, though. Um, we kind of deceive ourselves into believing that a way to gain control is to kind of beat vulnerability to the punch and just claim something and have that affect our joy. So how do we get rid of foreboding joy? Become comfortable with vulnerability of being human. Uh, to become more intimate with the Heavenly Father and come out with a deep sense of true joy on the other side. When I think about joy being one of the fruits of the Spirit, it kind of helps me process this a little bit. When I think of fruit, now when I think of fruit, I think of Creston actually coming down here and purchasing fruit in the markets and in the farm stands or even going to the grocery store. I picture this like ability to go and just purchase whatever fruit is available and whatever fruit I'm craving and just go get it. But that's not the same as the fruits of the spirits. We can't go out and just purchase it whenever we want them. Um, when we come to a season where we're desiring after joy, we can't just go to the market and grab them. We just can't. That's just not possible. So what can we do? We need to actually grow them in our hearts. And what that looks like is cultivating that and planting it and tending it, watering it. What does that look like? It takes practice. It takes doing the work. It's hard work doing, doing this kind of cultivation in our life. Uh, the work of stepping into the process of healing our image of God and healing the image of ourselves. It takes gratitude, practicing that. In these moments that we are struck by God's goodness, there really is no joy without gratitude. I'm coming to realize that. So by paying, atten paying attention, giving thanks, and doing the work in the ordinary moments, we begin to grow seedlings of joy in hopes of reaping a harvest of joy in these moments that actually seem unfathomable to feel that way. Uh, that maybe um, these moments that don't make sense to anybody else, but we can feel that sense of joy. When I first began this journey of healing, one of the deep, deep lies that I believed was that I'm not seen. Now, I've come to realize that this comes from many aspects of my life, but part of it comes from uh, becoming, being, being a part of a, a big family. And uh, there were six of us in our family, and uh, we often, because there's so many, and you, know, you all want attention at certain times, uh, to, to be seen is something we just long for. And I realized that a way that I could be seen was to uh, perform well, do good things to help my mom a little bit more or do this thing for my dad just perfectly. And I was able to be seen in those moments. So I learned that in order to be noticed or valued in that way, I had to do things in order for um, this craving, this longing that I had, this belief that I wasn't seen was just fed by that. Uh, this fact followed me around um, as I felt insecure in so many situations, feeling unnoticed, unwanted, and unacceptable, especially if I didn't perform well. 
my faith was also rooted in doing for God as opposed to just being, um, wanting to do enough good things so that he would notice me and that he would see me. And on the other hand, how many times did I fail and come up short and how many times did I feel discarded or hidden from God and, and from this father that I was told was supposed to love me unconditionally. One day, as I was journaling, I felt God prompting me to uh, look up my name and what that meant. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but um, in Christian bookstores back in the day, uh, I feel old as I talk about this, they used, to, <laughs> they used to sell these little cards that would have your name on it, and then it'd, it'd, it'd usually have a verse of some sort, and then it'd share what your name means. And I remember um, that my name meant wealthy or rich, which is quite funny when I think of that now. <laughs> and obviously there's more, more meanings behind that. And so I kind of scoffed a little bit and thought, well, I already know what my name means. I've had this card forever. But uh, I felt God prompted me to, to look some more. So I dug in and I, I realized that my name, Jessica, uh, another, another meaning, so it was wealthy, that came up too. But another meaning was God behold. And I, even that, I didn't, it didn't hit me right away, but I started looking up, like, what is behold? What are some of the synonyms for behold? And one of the synonyms actually means sees. So my name means, and what I found out that day, means God sees. And what unraveled in that moment was this whole, like, well, at first it was shock, and then joy, feeling like, I had struggled for so many years wondering if God sees me, wondering if I was seen and believing the lie that I wasn't. And yet all along God had named me and had chosen me and had even spoken that over in my name that he sees me, God hmm. sees. And I just remember just giving so much thanks that day and something began to heal inside me. I began planting seeds of God's true nature of joy. Three years ago, this coming February, my mom passed away really, really fast from cancer. It was a deep, dark winter of my soul. Yet in this season where I could have been always angry and resentful and devastated, I was actually filled with an unimaginable joy. Don't get me wrong, I was, I was really sad. There is definitely a huge weight with grief. Um, it was heavy, but I realized that still had joy, and I realized that it wasn't based on my circumstances, because reality is no one would have called this a joyous time. But I was rooted in the truth that God sees me, that I am not forgotten, and that he is good. These things filled me with a depth of joy that I didn't think could have been possible in such a low, low season. I had a glorious fruit ripening that could only have been harvested because of the sowing done by the noticing, the thanking, the healing, the processing that was done in my moments of summer. Uh, those bright moments where I was growing in my understanding of God's truth. Um, just lastly, another way to, in, uh, to illustrate this, I think of the galanthus plant. Have you guys heard of the snowdrop plant? It comes up in like the, the very early signs of spring, sometimes even popping up through the snow. And I think of it because it, uh, this plant begins to, to bloom because of the growth that has happened in previous seasons. And I think, you know, even now as there's snow outside, I couldn't just plop the, plop the seed in the ground at this point and expect, you know, come early spring that this plant will just bloom and grow and have these wonderful, delicate white flowers. No, it, it takes seasons before of planting these, these seeds. And that's the same with, with these fruits of our spirit. 
if we wait until our darkest seasons, the seasons where we really need them, to plant joy, it will not grow. We, we plant joy in our beautiful seasons by remembering what the Father is doing, by being aware and stewarding thankfulness in our hearts for how he was working in our lives, how he is working in our lives, that God is who he says he is, and that his promises never come up void. That's great, Jess. I, as I reflected on the scripture readings we had this morning, if you dig into the historical context of where they're birthed out of, Micah is writing about this shepherd king in the midst of a Syrian, Assyrian invasion. Um, if you look up some of the pictures from Assyrian empire of that period, you'll find pictures of Assyrian soldiers with huge pikes and Judean soldiers on top of them hanging. It's very gruesome. And so in the midst of this broken pain that's going on, Micah pens these words that echo into the New Testament, that they know this shepherd king, this Messiah that's going to deliver them is going to come out of Bethlehem. Now, there's also a duality of this because that's where King David came out of, arguably the greatest king in Israel's history. And they're looking and saying, someone even better is going to come and set us free from our circumstances. And so it's this joy that's planted in the midst of... of, of um, the season of Israel that comes true when they are occupied by Rome and it's something to hold on to, a hope of a promise, much like the Galanthus that's planted way earlier and that in hardship, that's when it comes to bloom. All throughout scripture, we see this pattern. Biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It is God, an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promises. We see this displayed when Israel leaves Egypt. So the plagues have come. Pharaoh has finally let God's people go. And they go out. And it's not like they're walking down the Las Vegas Strip and they can just go into any restaurant or whatnot. No, they're walking into the desert. And what is the first thing they do? They've never been more vulnerable. They've never been more exposed. And it's not like the promised land is just around the corner. There is a lot of trials to come. And the first thing they do is they sing and they shout for joy. Psalm 105 verse 43 actually talks about this event. The Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. Joy in the wilderness. Joy in their vulnerability. Joy in not knowing what the next step is. This was a defining moment. A way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by struggles, but by their future destiny. We see this similar theme play out when foreign nations subdue Israel. As we talked about with Micah, writing this beautiful passage about the Messiah to come. And Isaiah, when later the Babylonians come and actually destroy all of Judea, take all the people into exile... And Isaiah in 51 verse 11 says this, Those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, eternal joy crowning their heads, happiness and joy. In the midst of their waiting, in the midst of coming out of this super traumatic event where you saw friends, family, all of your people either slaughtered or subdued and taken away from your home, they write these words. The Israelites chose joy to anticipate future 
redemption, and freedom. And again, we look through the Gospels, we see this in Jesus. In Matthew 5, 12, he teaches followers, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hebrews 12 notes Jesus' posture of joy in the midst of trial and struggle. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the high hand or the right hand of the throne of God. The early church was also noted for its joy, even when being persecuted. Paul in Philippians 1.25, when facing the prospect of death, convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. I mean, I could go on and on. There's the, the classic line in James, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Consider it pure joy when things suck. <laughs> consider it pure joy when trial and hardships come. Consider it pure joy when you suffer. This doesn't make sense. But you see, when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable even in the darkest of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, I want to clarify, this does not mean we don't express sorrow or pain. My gosh, read, read the Psalms. <laughs> David, all the time, it's, is expressing hardship and pain and sorrow. This isn't a, a cheap kind of joy, like a turn that frown upside down kind of, you know, bumper sticker kind of joy. No, this is true joy. This is real joy. I believe that Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. Now we're getting close to the closing here, um, but before I close, I want to share a story and then I'm going to give you a closing thought to ponder. Now if you know a little bit about me, I love to research. I love history. I especially love geology and geography, studying in the Holy Land, um, some of the biblical places that Jesus visited in Capernaum, in Galilee, Jerusalem. That's often where you'll find me kind of losing myself on the internet in research and finding things. This week, um, Jess was talking, um, teaching the kids a little bit about the Valley of Hinnom, which is a valley in Jerusalem. And I, I found myself, I was kind of curious about it. And so I did a little research and I came across this just beautiful story that gave me great reason for joy. I found myself surprised as I was, as I was studying this because it just goes to show about how intentional, creative, and artistic God is. This morning, we read in the verses for the week about the fact that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. There's something else that's, that, found, that found its beginning in Bethlehem as well. So if you understand the geography of Jerusalem, there's three valleys in there. There's the Tyropian, the Kidron, and the Hinnom. The Kidron is the most well-known and most famous valley. That's the one between the Mount of Olives and Mount Moriah, which is where the Temple Mount is. And when Jesus actually entered Jerusalem, he came through the Eastern Gate, which was prophesied that the Messiah would come in through there. So that is the Kidron Valley. On the other side of Mount Moriah that separates Mount Moriah from Mount Zion is the Tyropian Valley. And then on the far side of that is the Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley has a long history associated with death. See, the Hinnom Valley was the one that during ancient Israel times, the Judean kings had set up a, um, an altar to Molech, 
Now, Molech was the god where they would come and they would actually sacrifice their own children to Molech. And it was a burning fire, and it, it was just terrible. That was actually one of the reasons that God came in and conquered and allowed Babylon and Assyria to take out Israel and Judea and Judah for their sins of sacrificing their own kids. And some of the kings of Israel even committed these atrocities. As well, the field of blood, or as it's also known as Akeldama, that's the field that Judas Iscariot bought and um, committed suicide on, or actually he threw the money towards the high priests and they bought the field. And... Um, because it was blood money. That's where Judas Iscariot was killed. It actually is on the edge overlooking this valley. It's just a really dark, evil place. In Jesus' time, this was actually a garbage dump. All the Israel, uh, Jew, um, people of Jerusalem would come and bring their garbage there, and they would, they would bur burn it, and it was actually called Gehenna. There was a spot in the valley called Gehenna. And when we, in our English words, talk about hell in the New Testament, it's actually referring to this spot in the Kidron, or in the um, Hinnom Valley, which is called Gehenna. And it was actually literally hell. That's what they called it. Mm. This is a terrible spot. Your eyes would burn, it stunk, it was awful. So the Valley of Hinnom, again, was often referred to as the Valley of Death. When the Jews returned from their Babylonian exile, they rebuilt the walls and the temples, and they begin the Second Temple period. And they realized in around 200 BC that they needed water for all the sacrifices and all the ceremonies that are going on up on the Temple Mount. And so they decided to build an aqueduct to bring fresh water to the Temple Mount for the ceremonies and all that's going on. Now, if you understand the geography and geology of, of Jerusalem, it would actually make sense to bring water in from the north and bring it south because the elevation is higher there. But there was no sources of water close enough to make it practical. And so what they realized was in Bethlehem, at the Pools of Solomon, is the Enidim Spring. And that's, again, the source of Solomon's pools. And it was actually, elevation-wise, it was higher than the Temple Mount. And so the builders decided to build a 21-kilometer aqueduct into Jerusalem from Bethlehem. So the water followed a gentle slope down to Jerusalem, winding down through the Hinnom Valley and eventually crossing and making its way to the Temple Mount. Archaeologists have also discovered along that route, as before it entered into the temple, that several mikvahs were made along the path of the aqueduct before entering the city. If you don't know what a mikvah is, it's a ceremonial bath that is required to be made clean before entering the temple mount, which represent God's presence amongst his people. So I want you to think about this. 200 years before Jesus... A project was constructed so that living water, as water is often associated with life, especially fresh water that's taken right from its source at the spring. So living water flowed from Bethlehem, passed through the valley of death, and provided a way for God's people to be cleansed so that they can stand in his presence and worship him. When I discovered this, that God had provided a tangible example of what he was about to do through Jesus in this small 21-kilometer aqueduct. I was overwhelmed with joy. And this is the kind of joy that is found in Jesus, not in our circumstances. As Jess put it, joy is found when we understand God's true nature. He really is good. He really is kind. He really is loving. He really is creative. I want us to reflect on this thought and question as we close. What if at the end of history, the question God asks us, is not whether we abstained from sin. What if the question is, did you enter into the joy that was available to you? Joy available to you right now. 
And it's not what's found in what's happening in the world, in culture, or even our circumstances. It's found in God. My prayer is that this Advent season will become Erickson Covenant Church's defining moment. Like when the Israelites left Egypt, and the first thing they do is sing and shout for joy. That was their defining moment. That this moment, this Advent season, and all that's going around the world, the unrest, the pandemic, and all of that, that this would be Erickson Covenant Church's defining moment. Joy in the desert, despite your circumstances. Joy that's found in Jesus. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.